Welcome to uh, Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. Uh, joining me uh, this afternoon is Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Joe. And uh, Chase Byers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the hey. capital of Pennsylvania. Congratulations, Joe. You got it right. It's really good to see you guys today. It, it's, it, well, it's so easy to remember where you're at. It's the capital. I mean, yeah. Right. Uh, very good. Uh, so let's just jump into our study. I want to talk about the conversion uh, in the book of Acts of a man uh, formerly known as Saul, changed it, had his name changed to, to Paul. But before we get into uh, Acts, uh, turn our Bibles first to the book of Philippians. Maybe understand a little bit about what this uh, man's background was. While you're turning there, those of you that are listening with us, please feel free to uh, chime in with comments or questions uh, on uh, Facebook page if you're following there, or as well through the Zoom app, which we would recommend you logging in that way. It's, it works a little bit easier and uh, is probably more consistent. Um, uh, so if you have any comments or questions through our study, please uh, feel free and we'll try to monitor those as best we can. So people who study the the Bible, the New Testament, are probably familiar with Paul. He wrote many of the books of the New Testament, um, uh, and his conversion story is told a few different times in the book of Acts, um, uh, both uh, its occurrence and then Paul's re- recounting of it on two occasions. But before he was converted, here's how he describes where he was, one of the ways that he describes himself in Philippians 3. And in verse, uh, beginning in verse three, Paul says, though we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, though I might, though I might, excuse me, let's try that again. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks to have more confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrew. Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is found in the law, blameless. Uh, And so, I mean, he's got a pedigree, he's got a resume uh, that is just tremendous uh, as a Jew before coming to Christ. uh, And he just, he has everything laid out there, particularly in verse 5. Uh, he traces back, you know, his uh, his lineage. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which kind of makes it easy and uh, to remember. You have Saul, King Saul, in the Old Testament, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, and then this individual, formerly known as Saul, from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, and he was a he was a Pharisee. Now, typically, when we say Pharisee today, people think of maybe hypocrite or somebody who is. Uh, establishing laws that aren't really according to Scripture or something like that, and even biblically that sometimes fits. Um, But what would we think of when Paul describes himself as a Pharisee? uh, How is he meaning that here? Well, he he in one place refers to his being a Pharisee as being of the strictest sect of our religion. Right, yeah. And so he just really cared about following the Word of God very carefully. Pharisees, sometimes like all of us, uh, overstep and make misapplications and, and things like that. But he was 
concerned about following God's word. And you at one yeah. point said something a minute ago that I think leads to the idea he really was kind of a rising star in his in his, in Judaism and certainly in Pharisaism. Right. Yeah. Go ahead, Chase. You had something. Yeah. I just he was a dedicated dedicated servant of God. He was just misguided, and uh, as we're going to talk about today, he he got eventually on the right path. But there is no doubting, as he says in verse six, that he had zeal for the Lord. Um, and also, I just think it's interesting. Sometimes we refer to Paul as a Pharisee of Pharisees. That is not in the Bible. It is, in fact, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. Right. And uh, I've been guilty of saying Pharisee of Pharisees before when someone pointed that out to me, and I just thought that was cool. I, I probably have, too. I hadn't even thought too much about that, but uh, but you're right. But just the idea of him referring to himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was just very uh, dedicated to the, the law of Moses, to, to the Jewish faith if you will. And I think a lot of people today would think that, that this kind of an individual would be just fine, um, uh, that, that they would be saved, uh, that, uh, you know, yeah, he shouldn't have gotten into the persecuting the church business. But concerning all of these things, his conclusion to this in verse 7 is, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And so that list that we would be impressed by in verse 5 and, and maybe even some of the things in verse 6, uh, he says they're garbage. Uh, they don't mean anything uh, to, to me anymore. In fact, in verse 8, Indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. And so all of these things that... Many people in the religious world would say, oh, he's just, he's fine. Yeah, he's not a Christian, but he's dedicated to his faith. And, I mean, this is like a sister religion to Christianity, people would think, or maybe even a mother religion to Christianity. And uh, so, no, he, he doesn't need any changes. Paul says, no, I need Christ, and everything is rubbish. It's garbage compared to uh, me knowing the Lord. Um, so, Let's maybe jump into a little bit about how he came to to know the Lord and turn our attention to the book of Acts then, and we're going to jump towards the end, and then we'll go towards the beginning and work our way back through. In Acts, the 22nd chapter, in Acts chapter 22, uh, now Saul has been converted. He's a Christian now. And he's been out preaching for years. He's gone to a lot of different places. He's in the midst of his third journey, what we typically call it's Paul's third missionary journey. He doesn't complete that. He doesn't get back to Antioch of Syria. While he's on that journey, he arrives in Jerusalem. He's arrested. And as he's going through the, the process of this arrest at this point, he gets a chance to, to talk to uh, the Jewish people. And so he's doing that in chapter 22 and in verse 1. Men, brethren, men, brethren, and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. And so just pause there, and again, we see a little bit more about his history, um, where he came from, Tarsus, and in particular, uh, who his Jewish teacher was. Uh, what, what's his Jewish teacher's name, according to this text? Gamaliel. Yeah. yeah. 
Go ahead. That's not just Gamaliel, who, who was a, a well-known and respected rabbinical teacher. Um, and Paul had, I, we don't know, we're not told exactly why he came to Jerusalem, but he says brought up in this city, meaning brought up in Jerusalem, although he was born in Tarsus, which would be up above the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea in modern day, part of modern day Turkey. And, um, but for some reason, he'd come to Jerusalem as a child to, to be trained by Gamaliel. I don't know, but that's what happened when he got there. Sure. I mean, you know, if, uh, if somebody was wanting to be, uh, to go to the schools, say art schools, well, they might go to, to Paris or someplace like that, where, uh, where that's what a lot of focus is. Or if somebody was wanting to study Greek, they might go to Exton or something like that. Um, uh, if you wanted to really be dedicated to the Jewish faith and really studying, you know, the, the law of Moses and, and the ways of Judaism, you'd go to Jerusalem. And so that's where he's brought up, and he spends all kinds of uh, time there, raised by Gamaliel. Where else do we know Gamaliel from in the, the Bible story? I believe we know him from the end of Acts chapter 5. He was a man that uh, made some really good points as to why they shouldn't just kill the apostles. Great. Yeah, so let's, let's turn our attention then to Acts the fifth chapter. Uh, a few weeks ago, we studied Acts 2, and we noticed... Uh, Peter's sermon there, the 3,000 souls that were saved. The story goes on in chapter 3, where Peter and John uh, heal a man who was lame, had been lame for 40 years since his birth, and uh, he's healed in the, at the Jewish temple gate, beautiful. And Peter and John are arrested in chapter 4. They are released. In chapter 5, then all of the apostles are arrested, and they're being threatened, and they're ready to, the, the Jewish leaders, they're ready to kill them. And Gamaliel says, hang on a second. And uh, he, he, he tells the, the officers to, to send the apostles out of the room for a moment. Gamaliel wants to have the floor here. And so Gamaliel begins uh, to, to speak, uh, pick up maybe in verse 33. Um, one of you guys want to read for us, maybe 33 through uh, 40. Sure. But they, when they heard this, were cut to the heart and were minded to slay them. So that's where they're ready to kill uh, Peter and John. But there stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in honor of all the people and commanded to put the men forth a little while. So there's where you talk about, they said, let's put these guys out of the room and let's talk privately, this council. And he said to them, you men of Israel, take heed to yourselves as touching these men, what you're about to do. For before these days rose up Thutis, giving himself out to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all as many as obeyed him were dispersed, came to naught. And after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the enrollment and drew away some of the people after him. He also perished. And all as many as obeyed him were scattered abroad. Now I say to you, refrain from these men, meaning Peter and John. Let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, lest perchance you be found even to be fighting against God. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles unto them, they beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Uh, that verse 40 just always confuses me. Or 
39, um, they agree with Gamaliel's advice, and so they beat them. I, I, I was describing it to somebody the other day, and I just said, you know, I think sometimes we just can't wrap our, our minds around the way some evil people think. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, to me, this is just not logical, but not everybody operates on logic. Uh, so they agree, perhaps just to not killing them, maybe is the idea. Um, so they're just going to beat them for a while. Uh, not much different than what Pilate even wanted to do with Jesus. Mm-hmm. I find no fault in him. Let me beat him and release him. Um, but let's go back to thinking about this Gamaliel, Paul's uh, former teacher, he gives advice here, and I think for a long time, and, and maybe others listening uh, have thought the same thing, I kind of thought Gamaliel really knows what he's talking about. He really presents some pretty solid, some pretty good advice that, thankfully, the apostles weren't murdered in, in this occasion. Um, but I'd like to examine Gamaliel's advice uh, for a little bit this afternoon. Yeah, hey, Real quickly, if I can interject something here. I said the apostles that were arrested and being considered were Peter and John. That's chapter 4. Here it's all the apostles that have been arrested and are being threatened and are ultimately just beaten and released. Just good, good. I, I may have made that same mistake earlier as well. Uh, it's, it's easy to confuse those two chapters for me. Uh, Chase, do you have a thought? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so uh, Gamaliel says, you know, listen, if this is from man, it's going to come to nothing. Here's a couple of examples. Thutis, uh, Thutis and uh, uh, Judas, um, uh, you know, those were, were leaders. They claimed to be somebody great. They got a following after them, and then it all fell apart. Uh, and so if these, you know, Galileans are, are just, if it's just from men, it's going to come to nothing. Let's just don't, don't even worry about it. But if it's from God, then let's be really careful here. Um, uh, and, uh, so in verse 39, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Um, that seems like, and I think sounds like pretty good advice to a lot of people, but I think what's happening here is that he's giving two choices and really there's ought to be a third option considered. You know, one choice is that if it's from men, it'll come to nothing. We don't need to worry about it. One choice is if it's from God, you can't, you, you can't overthrow it. Just leave them alone. In verse 38, now I say to you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For this plan or work is from men, it'll come to nothing. But if it's from God. So the idea is to leave them alone if it's from men. Leave them alone if it's from God. Seems like there's another option that ought to have been considered there. Well, well, yes. What these men have been preaching is Jesus is the Christ, and they've been preaching specifically the resurrection in Jesus. And uh, so if this is from God, then these people need to become followers of Jesus Christ, believers in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, uh, as the one who can offer the hope of resurrection. Right. Yeah, and, and I think I'd missed that for a while, thinking that Gamaliel was really the, the smart one in the room, and well, maybe he was, but he did not give the, the prudent counsel here that I had maybe at one time uh, thought this was. Um, it, is, it is not good counsel to sit on the fence or to not get involved in uh, spiritual decisions. We, we cannot just have a, an attitude of, well, I'm not going to be against God, but I'm not going to be for him either. 
either we either either we recognize it's from men and we shun it, or we recognize it's from God and we become followers of it. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's where I think Gamaliel's advice falls flat. But then following up and getting back to now our, our main theme for this afternoon, somebody who had heard Gamaliel, maybe even had uh, been a part of some of these discussions. Um, uh, you know, we don't know for certain. I have no way I wouldn't argue it very long at all. Uh, but Saul, uh, this student of Gamaliel, um, he's very likely heard maybe this conversation, maybe other conversations. That's an interesting thought. Was Paul in the room here in Acts chapter 5 when he was known as Saul? And from the... Go ahead. I was just going to say, and from what we read in Philippians and what we know about him, whether he was there or not, you know, we don't know. But had he have been there, he would have been right there with him. I mean, uh, it's not like at this point would have been where Paul turns his life around. No, it's going to be later. Right. Yeah, and and in fact, if he had been there, he would have he would have been right there with them. Is, is exactly right. We know that because as we go on in the next two chapters, we're quickly introduced to Stephen, who is then murdered, and at the murder of Stephen, who is standing there, um, <coughs> seeing this unfold, and a young man named Saul. Yeah. Uh, Saul is there, and uh, it talks about how they laid their coats at his feet, right? Um, uh, and uh, the idea is that, that they were witnesses, uh, that, that he was a witness to this. Um, uh, not just that he saw it, but he's driving the getaway car, you know. He's a part of uh, this, uh, this event, Acts 7, and in verse 58 it says, They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so the idea of uh, him, you know, guarding their garments while they kill Stephen, um, and then immediately following that, this man Saul starts this persecution, and it becomes the leader of this persecution. Yeah, yeah. In chapter 8, verse 1 says that Saul was in hearty agreement, the New American Standard says, with putting him to death. Right. Referring back to, to what just happened. He was okay with this. So it's kind of interesting maybe to, to think through this just a, a tad bit. We, don't, we ought not to lay our hands on the apostles. Stephen wasn't an apostle. He doesn't really fall into that direct category of Acts 5. But now Saul sees this expanding, and he's panicking, and he wants to put an end to, to this cult, uh, this, this way um, uh, to stop this this madness that he sees as as a Jew, um, uh, this this teaching about Jesus. So he begins to arrest people, dragging them out of their homes, throwing them in prisons, uh, causing all kinds of of havoc upon uh, the the church. Which was what Gamaliel had said: you ought not to do. You need to leave it alone. Uh, but Saul doesn't do that. It's almost as if he takes it one more step. And so he is. But remember what Gamaliel's advice, it wasn't entirely horrible. Gamaliel had said, but if it is from God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Uh-huh. Just thinking about Gamaliel's student, it's almost like later on in life, Gamaliel could say, you remember what I said earlier about you find yourself fighting against God? 
look at look at Paul. You know, look look at what happened there. Yeah. Uh, because that's exactly what takes place with this individual. But then, thankfully, we see him coming to the point where he becomes a follower of the Lord, and he takes his master Gamaliel's advice further uh, than than what Gamaliel had given, and realizes that I can't not only kind of not leave it alone. I certainly can't fight against it. That doesn't work. I need to become a follower of Christ. So, so you have, on one extreme, you've got the Jews who are wanting to kill the apostles. On the other extreme, you have, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to say this way. You've got the Jews who wanted to kill the apostles, and then you've got the idea of embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have in the middle uh, Gamaliel saying, you know what, let's just leave this alone. It might be from God. It might not, but let's just leave it alone. Paul goes from one extreme being like the, uh, Jews who wanted to kill, uh, the, the apostles, um, on, let's just say on one side of Gamaliel, he goes all the way to the other extreme, the other side of Gamaliel to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Exactly. Yeah, it's just really neat how the, that, that Council of Gamaliel sort of sets up the story for Paul's life um, uh, in the, these next few chapters. I, I had not thought of that that way. Well, I, I just sort of, I, I was in a study last week, and uh, uh, we were in Acts 5, and uh, I thought, oh, I want to go ahead and point out to them Gamaliel and, and what had happened. And then we just started talking, and it just kind of evolved into recognizing what a, what a key thought that was for, for Gamaliel. Hmm. Uh, thankful for those connectors in the in the scriptures. It it helps us to to understand God's purpose even greater. Just for what it's worth, there are two occasions later on when Paul makes this simple statement: "I persecuted the church of God." He says other things. He th- he describes what he did in graphic detail in some instances, but in Galatians one thirteen and also in First Corinthians chapter fifteen verse nine, he says, "I persecuted." the church of God. And he uses a phrase, a word that you used a moment ago in Galatians 1.13. He says, I persecuted the church of God and made havoc of it. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 he was not at all uh, middle of the road. Don't get involved. Uh, you know, th- this was a street fight that he was initiating. Uh, absolutely. Chase. Yeah. And I, I just, a little bit off subject, but not directly too much. Um, what's always fascinated me about this section of scripture is that it starts to tell this story about Saul and then it kind of stops and tells a couple other stories and then it picks up the story Saul again. And I've always wondered about that, but, but if you've ever just zoomed out and looked at the stories that are being told in this section of Acts, it's really fascinating. You go from someone like Saul and you see how evil he is to a bunch of Samaritans and Simon, the magician, being converted, to an Ethiopian eunuch being converted, and then to someone like Saul that's converted, and then someone that's a Gentile being converted. And I believe in this section of Acts, it's the readers are supposed to be seeing these extreme cases of people who we would never think would either have a chance or take the opportunity to obey the gospel, and they do. And I think it's really cool where Paul lies within the midst of these other people who were in different circumstances, but still startling circumstances. Or maybe it's a little bit different way. Um, people who, who it would have been striking to the Jews to think of as being recipients of the, of the grace of God in Jesus or the kingdom to become members of the kingdom, Samaritans, um, a Gentile, um, 
uh, I forgot, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, um, those, those things. Yeah, excellent. And, and, and another uh, uh, sidebar uh, comment you started touching on there, Chase. I thought that's where you were going to go. It, it is fascinating to me how the book of Acts is laid out um, with, you'll hear a comment about somebody, and you'll think, oh, they're just a minor player in the story. And, and regularly then, they come up to become much more significant. Barnabas, casually mentioned in chapter 4, and then mentioned in chapter 9, 11, 13, 14, 15, you know, just becomes rather prominent. Uh, Timothy, you know, casually mentioned in 16, and then he becomes, you know, when, when Paul comes back around, he becomes a traveler with him. Um, uh, I, I forget a few others uh, that, that fall into that category where they – it is mentioned them, uh, Philip, in Acts 6, and then we see him later on. Uh, it, it's kind of neat how Luke has written this, where there's a reason why he mentioned that person's name early in the story, because they're going to come back up uh, in, in much more detail. So let's uh, get back here to uh, the story of Saul and his conversion in Acts, the ninth chapter then. Uh, he's been persecuting the church. He's gotten permission, letters from uh, the, the leaders to go even some distance, go all the way to Damascus, um, and anybody who is found to be a part of what they called the way in uh, chapter 9 and verse 2, and that was a term, probably a derogatory term, if I see that correctly in the book of Acts, um, uh, to, to refer to followers of Jesus, um, maybe even thinking back to some of Jesus' own words like in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And these were followers of the way, uh, that, that course of Jesus. I'm curious why, I, I hadn't thought of it as a derogatory term. I'm curious what, what um, prompts, what, what things do you see that make you think that? You, I, I'm guessing that's not a real strong thought one way or the other, but why would well, you think uh, So I thought, and I have to go back and look at it. I don't have them all right in front of me now. But I was thinking that pretty much each time that it's mentioned in the book of Acts, it's not mentioned in a, in a positive way. Um, uh, for example, in Acts 28, see if I can find it here quickly, um, uh, when the Jews come to talk to, uh, to Paul, um, uh, does, I thought it used the word way there, but now I'm not seeing it. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 9. Okay, maybe that's what I was thinking of. Uh, when Paul's in Ephesus. Uh, but when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples' reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it may not be. I just, I've just imagined it that way. Um, uh, so e either way, um, uh, then uh, nice. <laughs> he is, he's persecuting the Christians. He's on his way to Damascus to do that. This light shines around him. And Jesus begins to speak to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And uh, he says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. There you get that sense of what Gamaliel had said. Uh, you don't want to be fighting against God. Um, and he's, verse 6, trembling, astonished. I mean, can you imagine what's running through his mind right now? This is Jesus that's speaking to me in this heavenly voice the one that I've been persecuting his people. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Uh, and the Lord said, rise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. I just find that really interesting right there. 
um, generally speaking, in the religious world today, when somebody realizes that they are lost, when somebody realizes they need Christ, what does the majority of the, and I'll use it, you know, in, in quotes, the, the Christian community, the, the, the religious community that calls themselves Christians today, what would they, what would be their answer here when Saul says, what must I do? Uh, what, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, you might hear somebody say, well, accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Or, um, let's see, what's the other expression? Say the sinner's prayer. Uh, you might right. hear them say one of those things. And, you know, this would seem like the ideal place to put that. Um, if you have a Bible that has the sinner's prayer in it, it's probably at one of the very end, one of the last pages in your Bible, somewhere around concordance and maps. <laughs> Because it's not in I the scriptures. Yeah, because it's not found in the scriptures. And so it's added later on to to say that if you want to accept Jesus into your heart, say this sinner's prayer and uh and then you'll have a relationship with the Lord. But even when the Lord has the opportunity to tell somebody what they need to do, even in the book of Acts, he doesn't say, Well, just pray to me or just accept me into your heart. Uh, the apostles never tell other people to do that. We notice that in Acts 2. We see that over and over. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter and John didn't tell the men at the temple that in Acts 3. Uh, consistently, that is completely absent from the stories. Well, and what's interesting here is when the Lord tells Saul, go into Damascus and it'll be told you what you must do, Saul spends three days praying. Here's a right. sinner Praying. I call that a sinner's prayer. Sure. And we know that because we get to Acts chapter 9 and verse uh, 11, and uh, the man who lives in Damascus, Ananias, to whom the Lord is going to send Saul, or the Lord is going to send Ananias to Saul, um, he tells him about Saul, says he's praying. And uh, he's been in this fasting state for three days since he was struck blind. And yet that's not what it was he was going to be told that he needed to do. Very parallel to the story of Cornelius in Acts 10, where Cornelius is told, your prayers and your alms have come up before the Lord. Send it to Joppa for a man named Peter, and he will tell you what you need to do. Yep, your um, prayers have been heard. In fact, later on, says Cornelius says he was told his prayers have been heard. Right. Uh, but that's that, not enough to save a person. Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. I think, and I'm sure we're going to get there in just a second. If you've ever heard it said, well, God doesn't hear the prayer of a sinner. Well, just pause yourself for a second because Joe and Jeff just mentioned the two times in the New Testament where God clearly does hear the prayer of a sinner. And to me, that is so powerful because the way God answered those prayers shows us what he thinks about that person. Um, In Paul's case, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, we're going to see God answers his prayer by sending him Ananias and telling him what he needs to do to be saved. Right. Yeah. Consistently, what we find in these stories are somebody being sent to people who are searching for God and being told what they need to do. And that that very idea, I mean, these are the Lord's words. Uh, you know, Paul says, Saul says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Uh, people get hung up on this idea of being saved by works. And, and I get we're not saved by 
our own merits. And if that's what they mean, then amen. But we are not saved without doing something. That is, that is just something regularly taught in scriptures. We need to do something in order to be saved. So, so one concept people need to, dis- to understand, we need to distinguish between the question of whether or not we're saved by works and the question of whether or not salvation is conditional. Right. Um, no, we're not saved by works. We don't do something that makes us good enough. Uh, we're not justified by what we've done. Um, I can't do enough good things to make up for the things I've done wrong. I need the blood of Christ to take away my sin. But it's a separate question. Is salvation conditional? Is there some condition I'm required to meet? And, and there is. That doesn't mean that I earn my salvation. Exactly. Uh, I, it, a, a way of thinking about that has been described to me before is, imagine that a, a man is, is on a, a yacht or a big you know, cruise ship or something, he goes overboard. And uh, the, the sailors, uh, the, the crew there, they, they see him, and he's out there yelling for help. Help, 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 I'm drowning. And uh, uh, somebody says, hang on a second, we'll, we'll save you. And, and he says, what do I need to do? And he says, just trust me. Well, when the, when the crewman says, trust me, it doesn't mean that he doesn't need to do anything, because right after that, the crewman is going to throw him a life preserver, we might say a lifesaver. Um, uh, and when he throws him that lifesaver, what does the drowning man need to do? He needs grab it. Yeah. Yeah, he needs to grab hold of it. He needs to put himself into it. He needs to hold on to it in some way. And, and so there are things that are going to be required of the drowning man if he wants to be saved. And so the man says, trust me, just grab hold of this life preserver. He throws it down. They begin to pull him back up into the boat. And the man says, wow, I saved myself. No, no, never think that. He would realize that he was saved by the, the grace of that crewman. He would realize that he didn't save himself in that drowning incident, that somebody else saved him. Somebody else pulled him out of the, out of the waters. The same thing with our spiritual salvation. When we do what we need to do, those conditions, that Je- the word Jeff used a while ago, rightly so, that doesn't mean that we're earning our salvation. Is that we need to put our trust in God, we need to believe God, and we need to do the things that He has told us to for Him to bring us out of the depths of sin. Chase, follow up? Yeah, no, I I think your point's exactly right. And and we see that same story over and over again in scripture in just different ways. When they marched around Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Do you think any of them looked at that and said, hey, look what we did. We, we marched around this in just a perfect way to where the vibration of the ground knocked these walls. You know, no. They understood this was all by God's grace that this happened. And all they had to do was listen. Yeah, there, there, There's not a mechanical engineer with a valid degree that would say walking around the city is going to make those walls fall down. Uh, it's, it's faith, trusting, believing doing by faith those things that God had said. Uh, The same thing will be true here then with this man named Saul. So he goes into the city. uh, He's led into the city because he's blinded. um, And in verse 9, it's kind of an interesting, Acts 9.9 is an interesting uh, statement made that I think is significant. It says that he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. What would that indicate? Um, He's fast. Maybe this is an obvious statement, but I don't think I've ever gone three days without eating or drinking. Um, uh, 
uh, we don't have to go any further than that. But what would it mean if somebody is three days without eating or drinking in this scenario? What would that be a sign of? Well, he's fasting, and typically when people fasted in the Bible, it, it, well, it was for various reasons, but often it was associated with remorse, with penitence, with sorrow, with the realization that they were in trouble, with uh, realizing that they had offended God, those kinds of things. Uh, just to, to mention one example, and this is not even Jews, this is the people of Nineveh, when Jonah came to them told them they were going to be destroyed, well, they, they fasted. Right. Uh, and there are many other examples we could point to. Good, good point. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that, that's, that's what we, I think, are, are, is intended for us to see here. This would be an act of, of repentance and, and sorrow. Contrition. Done. I'm sorry? Contrition. Yes. Good, good. Um, uh, and so uh, he, uh, Ananias then is sent to, uh, to meet um, uh, Saul and to tell him what he needs to do. He's a bit hesitant to go uh, because word is out. Saul is a, a public persecutor uh, of, of the Christians, and Ananias is one. Um, but in, by the order of the Lord, he goes, and uh, he preaches to, uh, to Saul, and then uh, he gives him some instructions here uh, in, uh, in verse 17 Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying hands on him. He said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came and sent me, that you might receive your sight to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Uh, and so he comes in. A uh, miracle is performed on him. He receives his sight back, and he is, is baptized. That seems like out of the blue. Uh, it just throws in the idea that he's baptized. Uh, you know, I don't, nothing said earlier than that, right, about that, uh, in, I mean, in this text. But we've already established the foundation of that. What was it that Jesus had told his uh, disciples that they needed to do when they go out preaching. Therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I commanded you. And so, very reasonably, Ananias is simply doing what the Lord had given instructions to, to do. Um, uh, and it's what we've been seeing all through the book of Acts, starting with Acts chapter 2, when uh, 3,000 were baptized. When they cried out, what shall we do? And they were told to repent and be baptized, and, and so on. The, the Samaritan city, the Ethiopian eunuch, exactly. Right. We've seen a number of examples already in, in this case. And then, uh, maybe to, to kind of bring this part full circle, in verse 19, after he's baptized, what does he do? He took food, and he was strengthened. Yeah, he, he gets something to eat. Uh, so, before this event, he's not eating. Now, he eats if this fasting, as we note in various other scriptures, is a sign of this contrition, this uh, godly sorrow, this neglecting of the body because I need to get closer to God, um, then it's logical. Now would be the time then to begin eating. Um, baptism is the turning point. That is exactly right. We, we should note the end of 18, he's baptized. Verse 19, then uh, this time of godly sorrow is past. He's, he's entered into a relationship with the, the Lord. Well, Paul is going to retell this story a couple of times, uh, right, um, uh, for us. 
maybe look over at Acts, the 22nd chapter, and uh, we'll see. This is where we were a moment ago talking about Gamaliel, um, uh, when Paul is, has a chance to speak to the Hebrews uh, that are uh, initiating his, his arrest. Uh, actually, what they were wanting to do was kill him, uh, and Roman soldiers spared him. Uh, but as he is telling this story, uh, he's, he's describing what's happened to him and why he has, why he's in Jerusalem, why he's associated with these Christians and so forth. Um, and we'll maybe drop down to, uh, verse, uh, verse 12, because we pick back up with the story of Ananias. And so this is Paul retelling what had happened in chapter nine. But as often the case, when we retell a story, we give some uh, additional information. He's not fabricating anything. It's just that this is information that is significant at this point, and so it's being included here. Uh, how about verses 12 through uh, 16? Somebody want to read that? Yeah, I can do that. It says, A certain Ananias, a man who is devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, received your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. And why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. All right. So, Let's zero in here for time's sake, especially verse 16. Um, uh, and this certainly complements what we'd already read back there in, that, in the, the ninth chapter. In verse 16, Ananias tells him, arise and be baptized. And we noted in previous studies, baptism is an immersion uh, in water, um, like what we saw in our study, was it last, last week, right? Uh, John baptizing uh, in the, the waters uh, near Salim because there was much water there. Mm-hmm. So, arise um, to be baptized. And what was going to be the accomplishment of that baptism? Sins washed away. Uh, no, it was so that he could join the religious community. <laughs> That's what I was told once. Well, <laughs> being baptized, uh, that, that if I would get baptized in a particular religious denomination, that, that what that baptism did was joined me to their community. Mm-hmm. But that's not the term. No. That's not what he's describing here. No, no. The that's... purpose of baptizing is to have our sins washed away. Now, so, so I got it right. Is that what you, you said? Yes. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yes, right. yes. You, you were right. Yeah. Um, that was a correct answer. Good, good job, Jeff. Um, uh, so the other day I witnessed a, a baptism and, uh, when uh, the young man came up out of the waters, he had commented about how on the bottom of the baptistry, it was really dirty. And, uh, I just jokingly said, well, that's all the sins that are down there. Uh, Makes sense to me. Uh, I'm sorry. I said, it makes sense to me. <laughs> well, it does. If we think of the washing here being somehow a washing of the physical body. But what does Peter tell us later on? What is baptism? Well, well it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, Peter says. Right. It's the answer to God of a good conscience. 
It's doing what God said so that we can stand before him having been obedient to him. Uh, and so it's washing away the sins, not fil- not fleshly, physical washing, but it's obeying what God has said so that we can have uh, our sins taken away. And he describes that as the calling on the name of the Lord. And we're out of time this afternoon. Maybe in a, a future study, we can go into more detail about this idea of calling on the name of the Lord, because I think that poses some other challenges, questions, and, and confusion in the religious community today. Any closing thoughts, Jeff or Chase? No, I had a question, but not time to get it in. We'll have to do it another time. All right. Well, thank you both, and thank all of you for for listening and joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Joe.